Let's pray together before we begin tonight. Father, I'm so very thrilled to be able, Father, to leave aside all the cares of the world, to leave aside all the cares of our life, and, Father, to be able to come here to tell people about Jesus and about the wondrous person that he is. And, Father, we thank you that, Father, so often, while we get carried away with the things of God, so often we long to come back to God himself and Father, I thank you tonight that we can come back to talk about God and talk about the God heaven, to talk about you, Father. And Father, I feel such a thrill in my heart because these are the most wonderful things that we can talk about. And Father, tonight I have to confess immediately, Lord, our bankruptcy to understand you. We can't understand you. You are beyond us. You're way above our thinking. But we thank you through the Word of God we are able to have a comprehension of you which is outstanding, even though it hardly touches who you really are. And Father, we're so thankful for the Word of God, which has been preserved uh, down many, many centuries. And Father, we thank you for all the men who fought for the Word of God in time past. And I pray, Father, that the testimony of the Word of God may continue, in, even in these days, Lord, that, Father, when you, Jesus comes again, there should indeed be faith on this earth, that the answer to his question, will I find faith, will be yes, indeed, and Father, we pray, Lord, that there might be preachers of the Word of God, people who will not be afraid to stand up and talk about the testimony of this book. And Father, to be able to explain the gospel with all simplicity and yet with powerful fervor. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for all our midst who tonight are on holiday. We ask you to bless them in all abundance, Father, and give them rest. Father, rest which is so much needed for them. Father, for those of us still on duty, as it were, still here, we ask, Father, indeed, for an anointing, that we should know that empowering within in us, that that anointing which we have received will lead us into all truth. I ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. The comment that I receive more, more often than any other comment about my teaching and about the tapes is a comment something like this. People come up to me and say, Roger, you know, I've never understood that particular point of doctrine before until I heard the tape that you'd done on that particular subject. Or they say, I never understood that verse before until you covered that verse, and now I'm scratching my head wondering why I never understood it before. And they say that the gift they feel God has given to me is to take complex things and to make them easy to understand and to present them in a form that people can take them in. Well, I don't know whether that's the gift that I have from God or not, but that's the comment I receive more than any other. Can I tell you that if that is the gift that the Lord has given me, this series called The Character of God is going to tax it to the limit, and no other talk is going to tax it more than the talk that I have to give tonight. Because we're talking about the Trinity, this is the first of three main talks on the Trinity, and it's so easy to make a mistake, it's so easy to say something that's actually wrong, and therefore I want you to know that I had to pray very much that God would actually guide. This is the only talk probably you will ever see me with my notes out on the rostrum. You know I don't use notes when I give these Bible studies. I have a lot of quotations to give, but also it's because of the extreme difficulty of the subject that I'm having to do that. And you remember why it's so difficult? Because we're talking about God himself. That's why it's so difficult. And last time I emphasized the fact, I hope you remember, that we must beware of when we're talking about God to make it so easy that everyone feels they've got God absolutely under their thumb. Oh yes, I understand all about God now. And you put him in a nice little box which has definite limits and you think, well, the concept of God now is one that I fully understand. If ever you reach that particular point, I tell you this, you don't understand God. Because the first thing we learn about him, surely, is that he's infinite and he's higher than us. And all the time, we with our finite minds are trying to understand something that really we have not a chance of understanding save by the Holy Spirit. When we come to the Trinity, there are many, many people who don't want to talk about the Trinity. They don't understand it. It's a jolly hard subject anyway, and they'd rather push it away from them. Whether you push it away or not, that's who our God is, and we've got to tackle it. 
I've always been fascinated with the Trinity. I, as I was thinking about this talk, uh, an incident came back when I was at school that really showed how long my fascination has gone on with the Trinity. I was actually an unbelieving sixth-former and quite a skeptic as well, and I hated school assemblies. And the sixth-formers used to sit at the back of the hall with their heads down right through the assemblies, and we've sometimes got playing cards out and things like this, and we used to do things in secret, you know, at the back of the hall. And the headmaster used to stand up, and he used to read a scripture or used to read a certain passage, and then he used to speak about it, and we, used, with our heads down, used to be whispering to one another. The only assembly that I remember as a sixth-former was one in which he dealt with the Trinity. And I'll tell you what he did. He read what is called the Athanasian Creed. My uh, headmaster was a churchman, he was an Anglican, and he read the Athanasian Creed. Now, the Creed was written in the third century by a man called Athanasius. We'll hear about him a little later on. And he was the chap who spoke about the Trinity, right? Now, he loved the Trinity. He was talking about it all the time. And he wrote a creed to describe and define the Trinity. I loved it. My ears pricked up, and I'll show you why. Can I just read the creed that he actually read out so that we can understand it? Now, listen very carefully, and let's go through it. This is what the headmaster read out. The Athanasian Creed. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither confounding the persons, persons nor separating the substance. The person of the Father is one, the person of the Son another, the person of the Holy Spirit another, but the divinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit is one. Their glory equal, co-eternal in their majesty. The Father is neither made nor created nor begotten, the Son is from the Father alone, not made, nor created, but begotten. The Holy Spirit is from the Father and the Son, not made, not created, nor begotten, but proceeding. Therefore there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits, and in this Trinity there is nothing greater or less but all the three persons are co-eternal and co-equal, so that in all things, both a trinity in unity and a unity in trinity is to be worshipped. That was quite something, wasn't it? And I was so fed, my ears pricked up immediately. I'd never heard anything like it. It was beautiful and complex and totally incomprehensible. <laughs> I thought it was wonderful, and I went up to him at the end of the session, and uh, I said, excuse me, sir, could I have the book that you read from this morning? And I copied out the Athanasian Creed, and I used to recite it. It was the nearest I ever got to mysticism. It really was. I used to recite, I used to think it was wonderful. Do you know that the Jehovah's Witnesses, I'll just tell you this in passing, believe that the Trinity is an invention of the early church. If you'd said that to me as a sixth-former, I'd have never have believed it at all. You see, if you're trying to invent something and trying to mislead someone, you make it simple, don't you? It's got to be an idea that you can present easily. No one in their right minds would have invented the Trinity. You can't understand it. Even, even after I've spoken tonight, I doubt whether many of us will have much concept, really, of what the Trinity actually is. We'll understand, basically, how to word it. And I thought it was so marvellous. I used to recite it at every opportunity. It was really thrilling to me. And do you know what made it authentic, as far as I was concerned? It was this, that I knew that God, if, if he existed at all, would be much higher and greater than I. And that if I was trying to define any part of God, this is the sort of definition I'd expect. That's what I thought was so wonderful. I didn't believe in God. This didn't convert me. But do you know, it made me think jolly hard. And it actually brought me nearer, I think, to God, that Athanasian Creed. It's the most wonderful thing in all the world. Well, let's just take the first sentence, shall we? Right? Let's just take the first sentence and let's understand what he was doing. Now, he wrote this in the third century. He wanted to define what the Trinity was. The first part of it says this. We worship one God. Remember that, please. Only one God. We worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. 
Now, we understand the words, even though we can't quite understand the concept, but that's what the words say. And then he added this, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. And what I want to explain is why Athanasius added that particular part to this definition. You see, Athanasius knew that unless you got it absolutely right, you were totally wrong. And so he had to add that definition. The first thing he says is, neither confounding the persons. What this means is, we've got to understand that our God is three distinct personalities. One in essence, but three in personality. And we've got to understand that the Father is a personality, the Son is a personality, and the Holy Spirit are, is a personality, and all three are distinct. Now, some Christians don't understand this. They think that God is a sort of quick-change artist. That on one page he appears as the Father, then the next page he dashes along and he changes his clothes and appears as the Son. Then the next page he dashes along, changes his clothes again, and he appears as the Holy Spirit. And that's the way some people explain the Trinity. He's one, just does this quick change thing in between. Rather like the woman, do you remember, at the Chichester Festival Theatre, who played all six of Henry VIII's wives. And what she did, she played one, then she dashed off the stage and got a new outfit on, and she dashed on as the next wife. Now, our God is not like that. You see, her problem would have been if there was a scene with all six wives on stage together. She couldn't have done it, because she was only one person playing the six. Now, our God is three persons all the time. Right? Now, that's important. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit appear together in the Bible, in the same scene, as it were. So the first thing is, we must not in any way confound the persons. They are distinct. Father is distinct, Son is distinct, Holy Spirit is distinct. The second point he then adds is, nor dividing the substance. And what he means is, we may have three personalities, but we've only got one God. Don't split him up. We do not worship three gods. We worship one God and one God only. Do you see how confusing this all is, you see? One God. Do you remember last time I said that the Islamic faith, the Jewish faith, and the Christian faith are the three great monotheistic faiths? That is, they believe in one God and one God only you'll find among these three faiths that, of course, the Arabs and the Jews cannot accept the Trinity. They just can't accept it. And you'll find that if you speak to them, they will suspect that really we've got three gods. Let me read a little passage from the Koran. I don't often do this, do I? But let me just read a little passage from the Koran. You must know your Koran as a Christian. No, no. The Koran actually says this, and remember, please, that the Koran was written about six, five or six hundred years after Christ at about the time that the definitions of the Trinity and of the Holy Spirit and of Jesus had, had actually come out, as far as the church was concerned. Now, here is the writer, and look what he says. It's a sideswipe against Christians. Say not, says the Koran, that there are three gods. Forbear this, it will be better for you. God is but one God. They are certainly infidels who say God is the third of three, for there is no God beside one God. That's what it says. Okay? All the writer is showing is that he'd never understood Christianity. Because no one in Christianity ever said we worship three gods. We only worship one. It also proves, by the way, that, that God didn't write that passage. right? Because God knows that Christians believe in one God. And if he'd written that passage, he would have made it clear. It's the writer who got it wrong. But that is the... That is what the Arabs suspect, that really we worship three gods. We do not. We worship one God. The Jews also find the Trinity hard to take because if they accept the Trinity, they have to accept the divinity of Christ. And, of course, they're not prepared to do that. Remember, please, our God is one God, one in essence but three in personality. And we use the term a triune God. Three personalities, but one God only. All right, so the Arabs find it hard to stomach. The Jews find it hard to stomach. Let me tell you who finds it even harder to stomach than they do. And that is every one of the sects. Do you know that? Every one of the sects. The thing, 
that more clearly than anything marks out Christianity from Jehovah's Witnesses, from the Mormons, from Christian science, from Unitarianism and all the other isms is the Trinity. You will find that the one thing that unites them is none of them believe in the Trinity and the one thing that sets Christians apart is that true Christians do believe in the Trinity. The more I've looked into it, the more I have seen that it is the Trinity above everything that marks out a true Christian person. I believe that. I believe it's only by the Holy Spirit you can believe in the Trinity. And I think, therefore, it's only someone with the Holy Spirit who can really, really accept the Trinity. We'll see that in a moment. Now, of course, they come along, the people in the sex, and they try and persuade you that, oh, well, really, they do accept it. They don't believe in the Trinity, but if you say to them, oh, so you believe Jesus is God, oh, we believe he's the Son of God, or a God, and sooner or later as you speak to them, you're going to come up against this problem. Is Jesus God or not? Not a God, not the Son of God. Is he God? Sooner or later you'll hit it, and at that point they'll have to say, no, we do not accept it. True Biblical Christianity is the only religion that accepts the Trinity and therefore accepts the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right? And in fact, I think it's the hallmark of a true Christian. Let me just show you a, a passage. We've only got two scriptures tonight. I didn't apologize for that. The next two talks on the Trinity will be absolutely bulging with scripture. Let's go to a little passage which you may not have understood up to tonight. And that's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's funny how difficult 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 are. And yet they're quoted by so many Pentecostals. But they're difficult chapters. And verse 4. I beg your pardon, verse 3. Verse 3. I wonder whether you've read this verse and wondered what it's talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Wherefore, he says, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calleth Jesus accursed. Now, that's obvious to us, isn't it? You can't be anointed by the Holy Spirit and say this is a word of the Lord and then say Jesus is accursed. That's not a word from the Lord. But look at the second part. And that no man can say that Jesus is the Lord but by the Holy Ghost. And this has caused Christians an awful lot of trouble, that little verse, because it's quite obvious that any person in the street, if you say, will say Jesus is Lord, they can say Jesus is Lord. Well, we've got to understand what it meant and what Paul meant in these days. Remember, please, as he's writing, there are Roman emperors on the throne of Rome and Corinth is one of the main Roman cities. And just a few decades before he wrote this, the Roman emperors suddenly decided that they were equal to the gods that they worshipped. You see, the Roman emperor suddenly had this brilliant idea, I want everyone to worship me, I'm going to be God. And what the Roman emperor said was this, that the word Lord would from that time on only apply to the emperor, because only the emperor is God. Clever. The word kurios in Greek was only to be used of the emperor, and it was a name denoting his deity. So all the gods could be called Lord, and the emperor could, but no one else. All the others were men. Now, do you see, when Jesus came along and people started saying, Jesus is Lord, no wonder the Romans didn't like it. They took it as a challenge to the emperor, because the word Lord was only to be used of the emperor. Only the emperor was God. Right? As, as far as the human realm was concerned. Suddenly people started saying, no, Jesus is Lord. What this says is that no man can declare his solid belief in the deity of Christ except by the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that you mouth the words, you know. Right? It means you have a real heart belief in the deity of Christ and therefore of the Trinity. And I know this, that the moment a person's born again, even though they may not understand the Trinity... They all believe it. Funny, isn't it? You may say, oh, I'm so confused about this. Do you know, by the way, that the subject of the Trinity has been called the preacher's Waterloo? Do you know that? And there was a lovely man called Dr. Robert Smith who 400 years ago said this. He said, if you deny the Trinity, you may be in danger of losing your soul. If you research into it too deeply and strive to understand it, you may be in danger of losing your wits. That's what he said. And that's true. 
It's only by the Holy Spirit, you see, that we can discern these things at all. You ask most Christians, do you believe in the Trinity? Most thinking Christians, they say yes. And then you say, can you describe it? No, they say. It's, only, it's a mysterious thing received by the Holy Spirit. Now, that's what that verse means. And therefore, I think it's true to say that the hallmark of a Christian would be a belief in the Trinity, right? A real fundamental belief in the Trinity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. I actually sat in a railway carriage once. I was travelling up to Scotland, I think, some years ago, and I got my Bible out and my notes and everything, and I was writing away. And this couple was sitting opposite, and I continued to write. And after I'd been writing for about two hours, I put my pen down and sat back, you know, and thought, praise the Lord, can finish that. And I was about to go and get a cup of coffee, and the man said to me, he said, oh, I, he said, I'm a Christian. I said, oh, yes. He said, I was wondering how long you'd actually go on for. And then we started chatting. The minute we started chatting, he said, of course, we don't accept that divinity of Christ nonsense. And as soon as he said it, I thought, he's either very misguided, you know, and being misled somewhere along the line, or he's not even born again at all, you see? So do you see how crucial that verse makes the Trinity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, it's important. If at this point, may I say, you are sitting there thinking, oh, yes, I'm beginning to understand the Trinity, you either haven't heard what I've said or you're fooling yourself, <laughs> right? The Trinity is mysterious. It's because of the difficulty of the Trinity that most preachers handle the Trinity in this sort of fashion. They don't speak of it as I'm going to speak about it tonight and as I have already. What they say is this. So many Christians, they say, have problems with the Trinity. But why should you have problems with the Trinity? <laughs> they say, don't you know that there are lots of Trinities about in creation? And then what they do, they give examples of trinities found in creation, you see. Needless to say, I'm, I don't really like that approach. There was one man called Nathan Wood who in 1874 wrote a book called The Trinity in the Universe. And the whole book is lists and lists and lists of trinities found in the universe. You see, I've got a copy of the book if anyone would like to borrow it sometime. You know, it's just give lists and lists and lists. And they stand up and they say, the Trinity is like this. And the Trinity is like that. I'll give you a few examples. It might just help some of you. I heard one man say, the Trinity is like an egg, he said. And at first, like an egg? <laughs> sort of oval. No. The Trinity is like an egg. There's one egg, but it's three parts. It's got a shell, it's got a white, it's got a yolk. That's what it says. Bit of an anticlimax, that really, isn't it? You know, the God's like an egg. Um, <clears throat> if you're a little more scientific, uh, the chap may say, well, um, actually, the Trinity is a bit like the rays coming out of a light bulb. When you switch a light bulb on, you get rays coming out of it. And you get three types of rays. Did you know that you do, by the way? You get what's called actinic rays, which you can neither see nor feel. You get light, obviously. If you didn't get light, it wouldn't be worth having it as a light bulb. You get light, which you can see, but you can't feel. And thirdly, you get heat. As those of you who've tried to change a bulb just after you switch it off know full well, you get heat, which you can feel, but you can't see. And so they say, well, the Trinity is like that. The actinic that you can't see or feel is like the Father. The light is like the sun. And uh, the heat is like the Holy Spirit. You can feel him, but you can't see him. <clears throat> well, that's an analogy that they draw. Or they might tell you the story of Columbus, you know, who was sailing in uncharted waters down near South America, and he actually saw three peaks on the horizon, three separate peaks. And he thought, oh, there are three islands ahead. But as he sailed up to them, he saw there was only one island. So what other name could he give it? but the name Trinity Island, or as it's said in Spanish, Trinidad. You see, that's where the name actually comes from. Now, they're the examples that they might give, and they might give uh, a few others along the way. The reason I don't like it very much, although for some people it's, it's helpful, is this, that in fact, um, uh, it's oversimplifying the whole thing. You see, the truth is that God isn't like any of those things, is he? God is unique. He's not like anything. He's like himself. And similarly, the Trinity isn't like anything we know, really. Absolutely nothing. The Trinity is exactly what it is. It's the Trinity. And therefore, although these analogies may help at first, sooner or later, 
you know, they try and box God in. The Trinity is well beyond our understanding. The only example I like in any way is one given by a man called A.F. Um, Triterton, or Titterton, I think it is, Titterton. And he just says this, and I, I quite like this as a mathematician. He says uh, that the Trinity is like an equilateral triangle. Now, if I can get some chalk, an equilateral triangle is a triangle with three equal sides. There it is, not quite, but that's an equilateral triangle. And he says this, you see an equilateral triangle. Only one triangle, that's true, isn't it? It's only one triangle, but made of three lines, three separate parts, and if any of these lines was missing, it would not be a triangle at all. All three are necessary to make one whole. In a triangle, each, uh, each side, and so each angle is equal. Now, that's the only one I like a little bit, right? Oh, I'll give you one other. Um, some people are confused over the Trinity because they reckon it like this. They say one plus one plus one equals three. You see? And they can't understand how one, one, one equals one. Well, if you change the plus sign to a multiplication sign, then you've got it. It's one times one times one equals one. But I'm not sure that helps you either. You see how difficult it really is. All right? So, whereas we may never grasp exactly what the Trinity is about, what I have to say is this, that the Bible clearly says our God is a triune God. We're going to see that next week and the week after. So whether we like it or not, we can't push this away under the carpet. We just can't. We've got to try and deal with it. It's the constant testimony of the Bible. <clears throat> next week, I'm going to talk about, or next time, the Trinity in the Old Testament, and the week after, I'm going to talk about the Trinity in the New Testament. And very often, the Jehovah's Witnesses, who don't seem to know their New Testament very well, say, no, show me a passage in the New Testament that says Jesus is God. And we'll be seeing some of those passages, and they're wonderful ones indeed. All right? Now, what I want to do now is this. I want to show you why Christianity demands a triune God. Without a triune God, do you know that you're not saved? That's how clear-cut the whole issue is. And I want to give you two reasons why the Bible demands a triune God. One God, one in essence, but three in personality. And the first thing I want to say concerns the problem of man. Now, have you ever thought about this? This is important. You know that the basic problem that we have on the face of this earth is that our sin has caused a separation between us and God. And that seemed to be a permanent separation. It seemed to be an unbridgeable gap between the two sides. And we believe that Jesus Christ is the one who brings God and man back together again, don't we? Now that demands that Jesus is both God and man. If Jesus is not God, Athanasius said, wagging his finger to all his opponents, if Jesus is not God, he said, then none of you are saved. And I repeat it. It's absolutely true. If Jesus is the one who brings God and man back together, it demands that he is both God and man. Now, to see it in its simplest terms, let's go to the second and last scripture we'll be dealing with tonight. And that's found in the book of Job and chapter 9. The book of Job, and chapter 9, verse 32 and 33. Now I'm going to read you another definition. Now, Job understood the problem exactly. In Job 9, verse 32 and 33, this is the problem he sees as far as God and himself are concerned. Look what it says. Talking about God. He says, For he, God, is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and that we should come together in judgment. He says, How can I talk to God on equal terms? I just can't. And then in verse 33, Neither is there any daysman betwixt us. And the word daysman is, is a, the word for mediator. There is no mediator, he says, betwixt us, that he might lay his hand upon us both. 
And do you know that the idea of a mediator is that you can totally identify with both sides? That's the idea of a mediator. And to lay hands on means total identification. Now Job says, well, this is impossible. I am separated from God. I need a mediator who can represent me and represent God. And he says it's impossible. Totally impossible. Except that his Redeemer, the one that he believed in, was exactly that person. And because we believe in the Trinity, we believe this, that Jesus not only is man, he is also God in one person, united forever. Isn't that good? So that Jesus Christ can come along, he can put his hands on me, and put his hands on God and say, I represent both sides. And in his own person, he brings God and man back together again. Now, isn't that the most wonderful news? This is the mystery that God had hidden all this time, that Jesus Christ was going to be God manifest in the flesh. And he, in his own person, shows it is possible to bring God and man back together again. He did it. Wonderful. And because he did it, he's done it for me as well. That's why the Trinity is so vital. If Jesus is not God, he can't be a mediator. You have to look elsewhere. A man cannot bring you back to God. He can't. And if Jesus is not God, you have no salvation at all. It was dear Athanasius who saw it, as clear as a bell. You see? All right, and that's why in a church council held in 450 AD, the Council of Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, I repeat that, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N, the Council of Chalcedon, they defined the person of Jesus Christ. Now look at the definition. Again, I'm going to give you one of these definitions. Please don't give up when you hear these definitions. You see, when you're trying to define God, it's going to be complex. It's going to be. Look what they say about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, they said, is true humanity and undiminished deity. I love that. True humanity and undiminished deity united in one person without confusion forever. I love it. Let's just take the little parts and have a look. First of all, true humanity. Why did he have to be true humanity? Well, because I'm true humanity. You see, I'm 100% human, believe it or not. I know that takes some faith to believe, but I'm 100% human. If I'm going to have someone representing me, he's got to be as human as I am. Therefore, he's got to be what? True humanity. But he's also got to be undiminished deity. Because, you see, God's undiminished deity. And if he's going to represent God, he's got to be undiminished deity. He can't be a little less than God. Because if he's a little less than God, he's not God at all. Very important to see this. And very difficult to see it. But that's the fact. Do you know, by the way, if Jesus is not God, but a little less than God, when you fellowship with Jesus, you're not fellowshipping with God at all. You're fellowshipping with a little less than God. Right, so his true humanity, undiminished deity, united in one person without confusion forever. You might say, oh no, not another complication. What's that bit without confusion forever? What do they mean by confusion? Well, I'll give you an example, and you'll see why it's so important, all right? I've got here two filters. They're beautiful colored filters, right? Showed these to my little boy. He was euphoric about them. That is a most beautiful blue. Can you all see that? Beautiful blue. That is a beautiful yellow. Now, if you put the two together, what do you get? You get green. That's what they meant by confusion. You see? You put the two together, and you don't get yellow, and you don't get blue. What you get is something else, which is green. Now, some people think that Jesus was God and man in one person, which made him half God and half man. No, he wasn't. That's why they added, without confusion forever. What they meant was this. Jesus was 100% God and 100% man in one body, united forever. He had to be, you see? Because I'm 100% man. I can't have someone who's half God and half man. Because I'm not a half man. I'm a whole man. You see, neither can you have half a God. 
That's why the without confusion was added, even though it's caused much confusion all the way down history. But that's the reason that it's actually been added. So can you see there that if Jesus is not God, that is, if the Trinity does not exist, do you see we have no salvation at all because we have no saviour? So that's the first reason why Christianity demands the Trinity. The second reason is also very important. This is a philosophical point. We have to ask the question, what was God doing before he created everything? I mean, what was God doing? All of us agree, and most religions agree, that God never changes. And this is why this question is so important, because what he was doing before he created anything is what he's going to be doing forever. Now, to a a strict monotheist, right, that is someone who doesn't believe in the Trinity, you've got God all by himself in glorious, splendid isolation. No one else, just God. There he is, not talking to anyone, there's no one to talk to. Not fellowshipping with anyone, he's all by himself. Now, as he is then, because he never changes, that's how he's going to be forever and forever and forever. And if you look at the religions who have a God like that, their idea of heaven is this. You go to this place called heaven, but God's somewhere else. God is way over there, all by himself, because he's always been by himself. Do you see? And so God's sitting there all by himself, and all the believers are miles away over there, looking through binoculars, saying, I think I can see him. (laughs) Now, you'll notice that's not the idea of a Christian heaven. Have you noticed that? What's our idea of heaven? That the moment we die, we go face to face with the Lord. That's wonderful, isn't it? So that you actually come in close contact with the Lord. You actually will be face to face with God himself forever and forever and forever. And you will be fellowshipping with the Lord Jesus Christ forever and forever and forever. What glory that is. How is it possible? Well, you see, before anything was created, our God, our one God, was by himself. But the three personalities were loving one another. They were fellowshipping with one another. They were talking with one another. They were communicating with one another. And they'll never change. And so they'll always do that. So forever and forever and forever, there will be fellowship going on. And when you die, you're just taken up and they expand the ring a bit, bit more. And we all put our arms around one another. Do you see, the very Christian idea of heaven means that we must have a trinity. It's very, very important. Praise the Lord. All right. With all of that said, you'll understand, won't you, why it took them so long to work out the character, character of God and to define the Trinity and to define uh, who the Holy Spirit was. Right? I, the Jehovah's Witnesses, as I said earlier, say that, in fact, they, um, in, the early church invented these things. That's not true at all. It's not true. The Christians always knew these things. The problem was, it was so complex, it took them ages to discuss it so that they could get a definition out of these things. That's why it took up to 600 years before these things were defined. Do you know, we have the definitions in front of us now. Most Christians today understand basically about these things. Do you know, they didn't really define that the Holy Spirit was a person for several hundred years. They just didn't. Didn't, couldn't define it. They couldn't see it in Scripture quite, you see. But do you know, once these definitions came out, they really haven't been added to very much. They came out uh, finally, in the final form, about 600 AD. Nothing's been added to it since then. That has been standard Christian doctrine from that time on. But lovely men had to fight for the truth in those early days. We've got to understand this. Right? They had to fight for it. Because the devil sent other people in, false people in, who were determined that lies would be put about, about the Godhead. And do you know, in those early days, there were real battles in the church. It's only in our generation, you know, that we have the luxury of saying, oh, come on, doctrine only divides. That's what you often hear. You know, doctrine divides people. You shouldn't talk about doctrine. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're born again, let's just get together. If they had accepted that in the early church, do you know you wouldn't have most of the faith that you've got now? It's because men and women were prepared to stand up for the truth and be counted that we have 
the gospel truths that we have today. And I'll tell you this, I'm longing in our generation for people who will be just as determined to stand up for the Word of God, right? And not to be taken in by the wrong teaching that is given out even in our own days. All right, if you look at the history of the Trinity, you will hit one man immediately. In fact, you'll hit two of them. One's not very nice. The other one's lovely. Right, the first one who's lovely is this man I mentioned before, Athanasius. A-T-H-A-N-A-S-I-U-S. Athanasius. And when I heard the Athanasian Creed, little did I know that Athanasius would become one of my favorite characters in church history. I just didn't know it. Athanasius. He's one of the people I want to meet in heaven, right? And I really want to say, I just think you're great. That's what I want to say. If you knew what this man had to put up with. Do you know he was exiled five times because of his beliefs? Do you know Christians today who would be prepared to be exiled because of their beliefs? Do you know them? No, no. Most Christians say, well, that's all right. I'll forget it. No, it's all right. Don't arrest me. I'll forget it. I can, I can do without that doctrine. He didn't. He stood there and he said, it's true, it's true, it's true, whether you understand it or not. And you imagine fighting about the Trinity, which is so difficult to understand. He was prepared to do it. The other name you'll hit is this name, Arius. A-R-I-U-S. Arianism. There it was. The Arians are still with us today. Arianism is still around today. Athanasius believed the things that I'm giving you today. He believed in the Trinity, that we have one God, one in essence, three in personality. He believed absolutely in the deity of Jesus Christ. Arius did not. Arius believed that Jesus was not God, he was a God. That's what he believed. And that, that Jesus was a created being, that the Father created him out of nothing. So that the Father's eternal, but Jesus isn't. Jesus actually began at a certain point. You see, that's what Arius believed. And the fight was on. And by the way, Arius was apparently a member of the church in those days. He was a bishop in those days. Amazing stuff. And these two men almost came to blows with one another. Arius had the easy job. Athanasius had the difficult job. And they used to fight and fight and fight like mad. The... Uh, the followers of Arius are the Jehovah's Witnesses today. They're still around and the doctrine's still being given out. And finally, a church council was called, called the Council of Nicaea, N-I-C-E-A. And in the Council of Nicaea, this issue had to be settled, right? Was Jesus God or was he not? Had he been made or hadn't he been made? They had to decide it. And in those days, the church and state were united. It's always bad when you get church and state uni united. And the Roman emperor thought, and he thought, well, I agree with Athanasius, you see, so I think that's the way we're going to go. Athanasius didn't like the Roman emperor's intervention because, you see, the next Roman emperor might disagree and he'd send it the other way. Athanasius wanted to win on doctrine, you see. But anyway, what happened was, at the Council of Nicaea, Athanasius won the day. Praise God. Arius was exiled, not killed, he was exiled. He was sent to Illyrium, or Illyricum, that's right, which is present-day Yugoslavia. And there, for 10, 12 years, he taught the Jehovah's Witnesses, Russellism, whatever it's called, he taught that in Yugoslavia. Did you know Yugoslavia is the cradle of the Jehovah's Witnesses? No, most of the Jehovah's Witnesses don't know it either, but it's true. And that's where he taught, you see, for 10 years. All heresy, all rubbish. But the Council of Nicaea decided that they would define uh, who God was. And the, the creed that they used is one still used in the Church of England, right? And in its Western form isn't quite as it was originally, but it's the one we recognize. And if you're an Anglican, you will know this creed absolutely off by heart, and good thing too if you do. But if you know this debate that went on between Athanasius and Arius, you can understand the wording. I won't quote it all, but let me just read it as it is. All right, this was the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. And it says this, We believe in one God, amen, monotheism, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible. 
and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds. Now look what they added. God of God. You see that? Very important. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. Just in case there was a little doubt about the fact that he was divine. He's very God of very God. Begotten, not made. Arius in mind there. Kick him out. That's what that bit says. Right? Begotten, not made. If Arius had had his own way, it would have said here made, not, not just begotten. You see, begotten and made is what he probably put in. Begotten, not made, being of one substance, that's essence, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. And so it goes on. And that is a definite statement of fact that Jesus is equal with the Father. That's exactly what it means, and that is exactly what it says. And so there it was, and that was official church policy, and Athanasius had won the day, Arius was teaching his heresy. And then all of a sudden, the Roman emperor thought, we've been a bit hard on Arius. So he thought, well, come on, he called all the church together. Look, he said, what we've got to do is, you know, we've got to love one another, right? You've had this minor disagreement over the Trinity and over the person of Christ. Come on. No, he said, I've decided that Arius now must be accepted back into the church. So he's going to be reappointed bishop. Okay? You can imagine what Athanasius said at that particular point. And the Christians who knew that this wasn't just a little point of doctrine, this was absolutely essential, they were furious. They started praying against it. And the emperor set the time and the place. He set a certain cathedral and a certain time, and he said, on this day... Uh, Arius will be received back into the church, there'll be a procession through the streets, and then he'll be crowned or bemited or whatever they say in that cathedral on that particular day. All right? And all the Christians got their prayer mats out and they said, no, not so. And there was one outstanding man who was Bishop of Alexandria. His name was Bishop Alexander. And he went in the streets praying, Lord, stop him, right? You get Arius. That's it. I found one of his prayers. Can I just show you one of the prayers of Bishop Alexander? Now, this is fighting stuff indeed. Lovely. Look, he says, this is what he prayed. Lord, he said, if Arius comes tomorrow, this is the day before he was going to be enthroned, if Arius comes tomorrow to the church, take me away, O Lord, and let me not perish with the guilty. But Lord, he says, if you pity your church, as you do pity your church, take Arius away, lest when he enters this building, heresy enter with it. In other words, bump him off, Lord, please. <laughs> That's what, that, what his actual prayer was. These were lovely men of God. Oh, that we had this quality of men today, really, who would say, Lord, the truth is so essential, we've got to meet it head on. But he wasn't just praying, this man was one who had fought for the truth. Do you see that? I have to tell you, God answered his prayers the next day. There was a big procession going through the streets of this cathedral city. And there was Arius being carried, you know, on the bier or whatever they carried him on, on poles on someone's shoulders, and acknowledging the crowds. And all of a sudden, he felt ill. Terrible pain, gastric pain. And he had to stop the whole procession. And he got off, they put it down, he got off and he wandered into the, you know, buildings, right? And they just waited for a few minutes. It's quite normal, you know, just popping around the corner. And <laughs> they just stopped. And after about 10 minutes, he hadn't come back. And they, went, they sent a search party out to look for him, and they actually found him in a pool of blood, and he'd fallen headlong into a latrine. He was totally dead. Alexander went dancing all the way to the cathedral. God removed the man. I'll tell you why I did it. Because he loves the truth, God does. And he'd seen the way these people were prepared to stand and fight for the truth, and he answers by fire in that situation. Now, the triune God doctrine won the day because of faithful people prepared to battle through and prepared to stand up and be counted. Well, let me tell you, I'm prepared to stand up and be counted. I believe in the deity of Jesus Christ, absolutely. I may not understand the Trinity, but I tell you, I believe it with all my heart. I know that our God is a triune God. I know he's one God, but I know he's three in personality. I know it. The Bible teaches it, as we're going to see. We see it in every part of 
the, the Bible, New Testament and Old Testament, right? Without it, we have no salvation. Without it, we have no heaven. Certainly not the type of heaven that we uh, believe in together. All right? So that's it. Remember this. If you in any way weaken the Trinity, you are actually weakening the whole character of Jesus Christ. And you must make no doubt about that whatsoever. It is Jesus Christ who is reduced every time you meet someone who doubts the fact of the Trinity. All right, now with all that said, we're ready next time to go on to Scripture to see how the Bible clearly says that there is a Trinity. Just to end, may I remind you of one thing? We believe in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit. Do you know that they act and live as one? Absolutely. You cannot separate their unity. It's wonderful. Anyone who knows his Bible will know that all the time they submit to one another and give way to one another. What does Father say? Father isn't interested in his glory. He says, this is my beloved son. You hear him. He spends his time glorifying the son. And what does he, what's he also do? He sends the Holy Spirit to do the work. He doesn't say, I'm going to do it. You stay back there. I'll do it. I want people to know I'm here. He doesn't say it. He sends the Holy Spirit down. Wonderful. And then Jesus comes to the earth, and what does he do? He says, Father, glorify yourself. I glorify you. What a wonderful thing. And then, instead of going around doing everything by his own power, Jesus only did his miraculous works by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, whatever word I hear from the Father, that I say. You see? And until he was empowered with the Holy Spirit, his ministry hadn't begun. See the way they give place to one another. When the Holy Spirit comes, what does he do? He comes to reveal the Father's plan, and he comes to glorify Jesus. All the time giving way to one another. If in marriages we had that type of mutual submission, we would have no problems in marriage whatsoever. You imagine two people, and all they want to do is to push the other one forward, right? And say, this is it. You know, he's got to be the one. No, 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 you've got to be the one and push you forward. Wouldn't that be wonderful? Oh, don't think about me. Think about, you know, your glory. Oh, dear, fancy having arguments that we just can't agree. I think she is the most blessed person, you know, and she thinks I'm the most blessed person. And I want her to go out tonight, but she wants me to go out. We just can't agree (laughs) over this, you see. No, I think she's more wonderful than I am. No, 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 you're more wonderful than I am. And so wouldn't it be wonderful to have arguments like that, thrilling? And what about in the church of Jesus Christ? Wouldn't it be wonderful if every Christian was giving place to one another like that? There'd be no trouble at all in the body of Christ. Well, there's the Trinity. Whether we like it or not, whether we understand it or not, I trust we all know it's true. And I hope tonight you understand why there's a necessity to believe in the Trinity. That is who our God is. And it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. Amen. God bless you all. Amen. Father, we just thank you for these things that we've studied together. And Father, we ask for the glitter from heaven to come upon these words, that indeed, Father, the, the anointing should be upon them, and that we should indeed go away from this place knowing something more of our God. Father, please just bless us until we meet again. In Jesus' name, amen.